If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. We'll be continuing in our teaching series out of that book. The book of Joshua is a very important book in the Bible that helps us understand the overall biblical storyline. See, many people, when they look at the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, they tend to think of it much like Aesop's fables. You know what I'm talking about, like the mouse and the lion, these kinds of stories like the grasshopper and the ant, where there's all these random stories that have really lovable characters that in the end has a moral or a lesson to teach children in particular. Now, yes, adults can learn too, but they're, they're children's Bible stories is the way we tend to think of the Old Testament. But the Bible is far more than just an interesting story that then has a moral at the end. It's significantly more than that. The Bible is God's self-disclosure. It is God's self-revelation. The Bible is God speaking to us, God revealing who He is, revealing what His plan is for human history. There is absolutely nothing random about the Bible. It is one story, a continuous story. And it begins in Genesis with God creating in order to display His eternal magnificent perfections. And He creates man and woman in His image to be mirrors that reflect His glory and will savor His goodness and to enjoy God forever in a a land that is good and perfect. And we see then that man and woman rebelled against their loving God, said no to God's love, and ran away. And humans to this day continue running away from the God who created them and who loves them. And, and what do we do? We make all kinds of idols, like made out of gold and calves. And we might not have those kind of idols, but we have our own things that we'd give our hearts to. And the Bible reveals that in the middle, right when man had re- rebelled against God's love, God makes a promise. And He says right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God had a plan. God had a rescue plan for His people, His prized possession that He made to know and to enjoy Him. Humans, the crown jewel of creation who've run away from Him. And God has a plan to go rescue them from their sin and rescue them from their, their slavery to our enemies. And he promises in Genesis 3.15 that one day a man born of a woman, the Messiah, will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the enemy. He will liberate us from slavery to sin. And we will once again be able to run to his arms and to enjoy God forever. And where Genesis reveals that, and then you have these these patriarchs, these men like Abraham and his children, this special family that God calls and says, you are going to be the means. And through you, Abraham, I will bring my Messiah who will bring my plan of redemption to completion. And where Genesis ends, Exodus picks right up on the same story where they're in slavery. And then God liberates them. And where Exodus ends, you pick up Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy where they're in the wilderness. And where that ends, Joshua picks right up where that ends. 
where they're now entering into the promised land that God has promised them, where they can enjoy their God's presence and display His glory as His people. And and where Joshua ends, Judges picks up in this next era of God's redemption. And where, where the era of the Judges ends, you have the era of the kings that picks right up where that left off. And God is everything. He's revealing that He is moving human history. And human history has a purpose. It's not random. And everything in the Old Testament is moving towards, is culminating in the person of Jesus Christ who comes born of a woman and who will one day finally vanquish the enemy and he will defeat the serpents of old and crush the serpent's head. And this is where all human history is moving towards seeing Jesus glorified and having a people that belong to him who are indwelt by His Spirit, who are made holy, who will be in the ultimate final promised land, heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, to enjoy God forever. Where you have the beginning and the end is Jesus. And everything in between is pointing to Him, fulfilled in Him, and is for Him, who Christ, who is God, who is man, who is preeminent, and He is our King, our Savior, our joy, our purpose, and the head of this church. And so when we are studying Joshua, understand that it's a bridge that's continuing to point to Jesus. And everything in Joshua is fulfilled in the person of Christ and applies to you and me today. And so these are not fairy tales or myths. This is absolute truth, and it's from God spoken to us. So let's continue as we study the book of Joshua, as we better understand God's plan of redemption through Jesus. Chapter 9, we left off with chapter 8 last week. Pick up where we left off, and let's read about God defeating his enemies and all is pointing to our Savior. Joshua 9, let's begin reading verses 1 and 2. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So what you're seeing here in the story, to catch a bit if you're here for the first time, is after they've entered into the promised land, they've defeated mighty Jericho, they've defeated then also mighty Ai, and now, if you know the geography of modern day Israel, they're right in the middle. They're right in the center of the Canaan land, right in the hill country. And they had an amazing strategic position in the middle, they formed the wedge into the, the land, and they have the upper ground, and now they're going to go towards the south and conquer, and north and conquer, and have the land that God has promised to them. And the other inhabitants, all the other city-states, remember, at this point in human history, they didn't have one organized nation. It was, it was just individual small city-states with their own individual king. Well, several of them, five here, join forces. And they say, hey, we have a common enemy, the Israelites, who are coming to destroy our way of life, our evil way of life that we enjoy. And so what do they do? Five of them join forces to go together and attack the Israelites. Now, this is very unusual for this era in human history. People didn't typically do that. They didn't enter into these kind of alliances. This is very unique. And five individual city-states would have created a very impressive army for that time in history. 
It would have been much larger than Israel's, and it would have been probably very overwhelming to the Israelite army. The Canaanites here are opposing God. They're opposing God's ways. They're opposing God's word. They're opposing God's people. They hate God. They didn't want to repent and follow God. They wanted to impose themselves and say, we love our evil ways and we don't want to change. And so we're going to go on the battlefield and oppose God and his purposes. So this alliance is showing great hardness of heart against God and his purposes. And yet, I was going to see in just a second, there was one particular people, the people of Gibeon. The Gibeonites recognized that they were desperate. Unlike the other people in the land, they knew that they had no hope to defeat the one true God. They knew that they were in a desperate situation, and they knew that they had to take drastic measures or they, like the rest of the Canaanites, were going to be exterminated. And so let's read about the Gibeonites, verses 3 through 7. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks of their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? See, the Gibeonites lived right there, literally right next to where Israel was encamped in Gilgal. Now, they knew that the one true God had promised to give this land to his people. The, the Gibeonites recognized God's power. They recognized God's authority. They recognized that God was the one true God. They knew God's power and authority. Now, they were a very creative people. Not the most honest, but a very creative. They were very good at drama. What did they do? They sent some ambassadors. They put all their old clothes that are torn up and old shoes, and they, and they get old crumbly bread together, and they say, we've traveled from such a far distance, and so come, make a covenant with us. They're trying to deceive the Israelites. Now, the Israelites know that God has commanded them to kill all the inhabitants. We talked about this the last few weeks, so not, not to review too much. But these were evil people that were deserving of God's judgment. They had chances for 500 years to repent, and they did not. And now God in his holiness is executing justice over these people that are not an innocent people. They're sacrificing their own children to the god Molech. These people were not good, not innocent, and God was executing his divine justice through Israel. But the Gibeonites know if we say, please don't kill us, the Joshua's not going to listen to them because God gave them instructions. And so what do they do? The Gibeonites go and they have this great ruse, this big trick. But the Israelites aren't too sure. They're like, well, what if you live among here? What if you're from the Canaan area? We're supposed to kill you. And so what happens? Verses 8 through 13 reveal a little bit more. And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. 
And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Ah, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the the Gibbonites have heard of God's glory and power and the past victories. And so now they're going, and there's this great big trick, because they want to become part of God's people. They want to enter into a covenant with the God of Israel. Verses 14 and 15. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So the Israelite leaders did not bother to seek God's counsel. They just, it says that they were convinced by the bread, his original language. This is this interesting, almost comical language where they were convinced by the bread. They said, okay, well, look, it looked like bums. It must be true. No, no one would come to us. With, well, so they thought. But sure enough, the Gibeonites were deceiving the Israelites. And yet, the Israelites, in their foolishness, enter into a covenant. Now, verse 15 has very important language that we can't miss if we're going to understand this story. It says that the Israelites made peace with the people of Gibeon. They entered into a covenant relationship, and it says to let them live. Remember the context. They were told to give the Gibeonites death. Instead, they're giving them life. The Gibeonites were under the curse of God, and now they have peace with God. And so you see the exact opposite. They deserve death, and they're getting life. They deserve to be cursed of God, and they're getting peace. They're getting shalom is a word there. They're at peace with God. They're part of God's covenant people. They're part of the plan of God. Now they're part of God's people. They're they're experiencing salvation. They have life here. So the Gibeonites go to Israel, and now they're allies with Israel, and now they're servants of Israel, servants of God. And instead of killing these Canaanites, now Israel is responsible for them and is to care for them. Is this not shocking? It's just shocking. The exact opposite of what was supposed to happen is taking place here. Now, three days later, the Israelites find out that they've been tricked. They realize, hey, you're our neighbors. We weren't supposed to have a covenant with you. You said you lived far away. And so Joshua is not pleased. 
the people in Israel are not pleased, and they're, they're grumbling against the leadership. They're frustrated. Now, we don't know why they're frustrated. One of two possible reasons. One, they're frustrated because of God's holiness, and they were trying to follow God's instructions, and now they can't. But I think there maybe was a human element, too, where now they can't take all their stuff. They can't plunder them. Because whenever they would conquer people, they'd take all the spoils of victory. Now they can't. Now the Gibeonites are part of them. They're part of God's people. And so, for whatever reason, the text doesn't say, what we do see is people are upset. They're grumbling against their leadership. And yet Joshua says, no. No, we made an oath. Our word is good. Yes, they deceived us, but that is not here nor there. That doesn't matter. They're part of us. They belong with us, and they will live with us, and they will serve God with us, and we will protect them and be responsible for them because we swore in the name of God. And so verses 22 and following pick up the story. This is where they're, they're having the discussion where Joshua is interrogating the leaders. It's, it's actually kind of funny. Joshua summoned them, and he said, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? He's saying, why are you lying to us? Verse 23, now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and jars of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had a command from a servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you, what you did to this thing. And, be, and now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do it to us. And so he did to this to them. And delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and jars of water for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord, to this day, in the place that he should choose. See, these Gibeonites knew that God was all-powerful, and they had two options. They had only two. No third one. The first option was rebellion. They could have chose to rebel against God and against God's people. And they would have died, just like all the other Canaanites did. Second option was humility. They could have humbled themselves, submitted themselves to God, joined God's people, and live. And they chose to humble themselves. This is actually showing great faith. They're placing their trust in God. Now understand what the Gibeonites were actually doing. Understand what they're giving up by finding their way into the people of God. They were giving up a great deal. One, they were giving up their old way of life. They knew that God wouldn't roll the same way that their God rolls. They knew it would be different. They knew their life would have to change. They knew that there would be no way that they could continue living in that same way. But it wasn't just way of life. They often knew that they'd have to give up their false gods, give up the god Molech, give up all the other Canaanite gods, and worship the one true God. So they're giving up the old way of life, giving up their old gods. They're giving up their old identity as Canaanites. Now they're part of the Israelites. 
And so they're giving up their identity as a people. They were giving up security because they had the alliance. They were part of Canaan. They could have joined the other five kings. They could have said, okay, so there's these other five kings. There's this huge army to the south that's being assembled to stop Israel. We could go join them or we can join Israel. And humanly speaking, joining the other five kings would have been more impressive. It was a bigger army, more people. Follow the flow. Go with the status quo. Follow the crowd. And they said, no way. We are not joining the new alliance. We're joining the people of God. And that may open us up, making them mad at us. The other Canaanites might not like it, that we're defecting and we're joining the Israelites. But we don't care. We have no hope. Our only chance is to join God. Because if you oppose Him, you're done. And they knew that. And they took drastic measures. The only way they knew how to humble themselves and to join God. They gave up everything because they believed that there was a one true God who had the authority. And so they did everything they could to join. And Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves, which, by the way, is the same name for Jesus in the Greek, Yeshua, Jesus in the Greek. It's the same name. What you're seeing here, he saves, it says, he delivered, he saves the Gibeonites from the angry Israelites. He saves them is the language. You see, they knew, the Gibeonites knew that they were hopeless. Why he says, whatever seems right in your sight to do to us, do it. We're at your mercy. We're done anyway. We can't oppose you. Joining the other kings isn't going to help. And so we're appealing to your God. Show mercy as we're humbling ourselves. And they get to serve God in the tabernacle. This is shocking. They're Canaanites. They're the enemy. They're evil people. And yes, they're menial tasks and cutting wood and drawing water. But who cares? They're serving the living God in the tabernacle. I mean, think of the honor that that was. Even though it was the most respected position, does it really matter? They're serving the one true God. Yes, the Israelites were foolish making the covenant. Agreed. And yet, God is sovereign. God was working out his purposes. And he uses our foolishness to accomplish his wisdom, to accomplish his divine purposes. Now, the other Canaanites were not so happy. Sure enough, this new alliance did not like Gibeon joining the Israelites. And so they decide to go attack Gibeon to destroy them, which would have been not very difficult. Five against one would have been an easy defeat of Gibeon. And it would have shown the other city-states a lesson. A lesson saying, don't join Israel. You join Israel, we kill you. This is the message that was being sent to the other northern city-states saying, we need to join together and defeat the Israelites. And so they go and they attack Gibeon. Now, Gibeon, thankfully, was able to send out a messenger right before they're attacked. Let's pick up the story in chapter 10, verses 5 and following. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, 
the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Them fighting words. God knows what he's doing. God's never surprised. God used the Gibeonites in joining the Israelites to bring the entire southern command, the entire southern, all of them, all of the kings to come at once. So Israel didn't even have to go fight them individually. They all came straight to Josh to go defeat them in one battle. And so God is about to wipe out the entire southern kingdom very quickly. And God says, don't be afraid. I have a plan. Trust me. Now, let's think for a moment about these kings. Like get angry and go against Gibeon, go against the people of God. They had a choice to make, and they also had two choices. This new alliance of these five kings, they could have chosen, number one, the path of Gibeon, which is the path of humility, the path of repentance, the path of surrender. The other option was opposition, rebellion. They could have chosen to go and attack sinful rebellion. Well, they chose sin over faith and repentance. And so Joshua leads the attack against the enemy, the army of Israel against five armies of these other nations, these other city-states, and they're fighting each other on on the battleground as recorded in chapter 10. But it's really God who's fighting. In this remarkable language, says that hail, so large hailstones are falling and kill more of the enemy than even the Israelites could get to with their swords. And so before they could even get to the enemy, they're all dying because of a hailstorm. And so God was fighting for his people. And then in order to finish this long battle, Joshua cries out to God in verse 12. And here's what Josh says. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord God gave the Amorites over the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Eichlon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped. So the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not what is written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. This was a supernatural work of God. Now, I don't know how it happened. All right? I don't know how the sun stood still because, I mean, we all know the sun doesn't actually move. The sun is stationary. It's the earth that is spinning while revolving around the earth. And so, I don't know how God did it. I mean, in my own Rational thinking, God could have changed the axis degree that the earth sits on. And so by changing the degree of the axis, that would change the sun's position. Possibly God slowed down the earth's 
rotation, therefore the sun would appear to be standing still longer. I don't know, technically speaking, what God did to cause the effect of the sun not moving. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how God did it because this is God's truth, and we know that he did. We know that somehow, maybe a way that I can't even think of, probably, I'm not that smart, God did it. Supernatural. This is a miracle. Yes, the world has these natural workings. And so we do have theories and we have the laws of physics and aerodynamics and, and the theory of gravity and so forth. And we have all of that. And it works. So we, we can examine and make deductions of, of how things should work. And this is a good thing. Science is good. But remember, God stands outside and he controls the natural universe and natural created order and God can change things as he sees fit. And on this day, he did. And he made the sun hold still. And he gave the Israelites victory, defeated the enemy, completely wiped out. All five armies, entire son and kingdoms, gone. And so now you have these five kings running away and hiding in a cave. And then Joshua calls his troops to bring out the cowards who didn't die on the battlefield, who ran. He goes and he calls these five kings. And let's pick up the story of what happens after this victory in the kings before Joshua. Verse 24. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs, of the men of war who had gone with him. Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. Now, when 21st century, modern, sophisticated people like ourselves, being in a zoo, when, when we read these words, we're tended to think, oh, that's so barbaric. That's just, that's just kind of gross. And that's just the way things were in the ancient civilization where it, there was no such thing as internet yet. And, and there, there weren't laws in place. And it wasn't a, a civilized time like what we live in today. That's just the way it was in the ancient world. That's the way we tend to think when we read this. We think, well, I'm so glad I live today in the 21st century where there's more law and order than what you're seeing in the ancient world. But that's not the point. What you're seeing here in Joshua chapter 10 is not to gross us out about an ancient era. This is so much more significant. And the truths revealed here apply to you and me today in 2014. They're so profound. If you read the Bible in its complete context, what you're seeing here is so significant and will change your eternity these chiefs, these leaders of war, have their feet on the head of the enemy. And he says, be strong and be courageous. We're going to have victory over the enemy. What does this sound like? Does this sound familiar to Genesis 3, 
15. For there is a promise that our victorious King Jesus will crush the head of the enemy. He's going to defeat the enemy. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he's going to give his people freedom from tyranny, freedom from slavery, freedom from our sin. And he's going to give us an eternity of rest where we enjoy God forever. And so what you're seeing with Joshua and the leaders putting their feet on the heads of these evil men is a foreshadowing pointing to the reality that will happen one day when Christ comes back in full glory to defeat the enemy, to give us hope and freedom. And we can follow him today, waiting for that day to come. And we can live with this assurance that it's coming. We will have victory. We will. We will have rest in all of the opposition, the forces of of evil, the kingdom of darkness and Satan will be defeated. And so what you're seeing here is a foreshadowing to he who is preeminent, to Jesus Christ. This story shows us God's glory through judgment. And so Jesus will one day enact justice by judging Satan. And sadly, all those people who refuse to bow their hearts to the rightful king will also be judged. But this story also shows God's glory in grace. It shows God's glory through judgment, but also shows God's glory through grace. And stories about God's grace to save the Gibeonites who did not deserve God's grace. After looking at this story, let me kind of backtrack here as we kind of wind down our thoughts and as you think, okay, how does this story really apply to me today? I want to give you three truths from this text that will help you understand how this will apply to you as you follow Jesus in the 21st century. Let me give you the main idea of the story that we just read. is that God's glory is most clearly displayed by his grace towards sinners. So this story is just showing us that God's glory is most clearly displayed by his grace towards sinners. We are the Gibeonites. Understand this. In this story, that's who we are. We are the desperate sinners who deserve God's judgment. We are the liars who deceive others. We are the sinners that have no hope. We're the ones that have received God's salvation through our Yeshua. This story is about grace and God's overwhelming grace to save people who don't deserve it. Let me give you the first truth here as we wind down to get our thoughts on this applies. Number one, God's grace is shocking. God's grace is shocking. Well, what is grace? Grace is God's goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. God being good to those who don't deserve it. The Gibeonites deserved to die for their evil ways and their deception no less. But instead, God protected them and he saved them. They got the opposite. So the Gibeonites did not deserve God's goodness. But that's the whole point of grace. It's not about deserving anything. 
Grace is free and, and undeserved. It's the work of God to bring His people to glory. Grace towards sinners is God's all-powerful purpose to display His infinite worth. And so, if we're honest, if we're honest on a Friday morning, if we're just with ourselves, when we look in our hearts, what we see is selfishness, and we see lustful desires, and we see guilt, and we see shame, and rebellion, lack of contentment, and the list goes on of desires that are in our hearts. We don't deserve God's goodness. None of us do. But that's why God sent Jesus to die on the cross, to take our guilt and our shame, and be accursed in our place, to hang on the tree and have the curse of God on him. Jesus paid our debt and resurrected powerfully. He paid the debt that if he didn't pay, we'd be paying off ourselves for eternity in hell. Grace is shocking. Are you shocked by God's grace towards you? I really mean this. Are you shocked by it? You should be. I should be. We must be absolutely blown away and shocked by it. That he would actually love me and send Jesus for me. That he would lavish his grace upon me. And if you're not shocked by God's grace, you're deceived. You don't understand the price Jesus paid. And you don't understand how sinful you are. We are. You know what happens when we're not shocked by God's grace towards us? we will very subtly begin to try to earn God's favor. We'll think if I do enough good and go to church enough and go to home group and serve others and teach the kids and pray and give, put money in the offering bag, if I start doing all of these religious things, then I can be a good person and I can then earn God's approval. And it's very subtle, but any of us can fall into that pattern. And what happens, you know what will happen to you? You'll get tired. You'll get worn out. And you'll get frustrated with God because at its roots, when we're trying to earn God's favor, at its core, it's motivated by pride. We want to earn it. We want to deserve it. But we don't. And we can't. So the only response to God's grace is faith and repentance. Are you here today, and are you just weary? Are you tired of trying to earn God's favor? Don't raise your hands, but if you're here, and you are truly tired, you're worn out because you're trying to earn it, and you find yourself angry at God and frustrated because things aren't working out the way you would want, and you think, God, I'm doing all this for you, and you don't do this for me. Please, please, I beg you, Stop. Stop trying to earn what's free. Jesus already paid. You don't have to earn it. Rest. Trust in Jesus. Humble yourself. And then you'll have joy. Then you'll have rest. May God's grace truly shock you. What God wants is not your duty. He wants your delight. He wants you to enjoy him. Number two, God's grace leads to life-changing faith. So God's grace is shocking. And number two, God's grace leads to life-changing faith. You see, the Gibeonites told Joshua that they came because, it says, because of the name of the Lord your God. They call upon God's personal name. 
And so what would cause evil pagan Canaanites to give up everything for the one true God? What would, what would cause that? But the grace of God. Only God's grace can do that. People on their own would never turn to God. It is only by God's grace we recognize His goodness. God's grace always comes first. And then we respond to God's goodness to us with faith and repentance. And when you put your trust in Jesus, what happens is you're changed. Your life is different. The Gibbon has lived among Israel. Their lives were different. And so trusting God leads to transformation. Why we read from Ephesians 2 earlier in the worship gathering. But God, being rich in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, we had been made alive, resurrected spiritually. By grace you have been saved. This is not by works. It is the gift of God that no man may boast. No bragging. No pride. And so it begins with grace. We experience God's grace, and then that leads to our faith, and then that leads to transformation. So this is the way it works. You can't change yourself. Only God can do that. It begins with seeing his grace, responding with faith, and then he will change you to walk in good works that he prepared for you. This is not cultural Christianity. When someone turns to Christ with their whole heart, They get a new nature. They get a new heart, new desires, new power to overcome temptation and sin. And then our lives begin to reflect God's holiness. Not because you're earning salvation, because we can't. Jesus did that. But because you've been changed. You've been transformed. You have a new heart, new desires. And now we want to kill our sin. Now we want accountability. Now we want our fellow brothers and sisters to speak truth and love to us so that we can reflect more of God's glory. We want more of his presence. And it's not slavish duty. It's a delight. We want to. Drawing near to Jesus every day, recognizing his grace, will impact everything. Your relationships, I ask you to honestly consider, in your life, do you have any unreconciled relationships? Even as you think right now, is God giving you someone in your mind He's bringing to, to your recollection that you know that you're not reconciled with him or her? God's grace, when you understand how he's been gracious to you, then you will extend that grace to others and you will go and reconcile. And so go today and reconcile that broken relationship. What about your parenting? This impacts your parenting. There will be a whole sermon. We're out of time. But this would impact your parenting in tremendous ways. When you realize God's grace for you, then you will teach your children with grace to love, trust, and obey Jesus. So are you graciously teaching your children about Jesus? Don't exasperate your children. Speak truth to them in love. What about your work? If we talk to your coworkers, how they speak about your work ethic or about how you treat them, you show grace to coworkers, even when they're hard. I know it's hard in Abu Dhabi, but you extend grace to your coworkers. Do they see God's grace flowing through you? What about your marriage? Oh my goodness. Understanding God's grace for you would transform your marriage because you'd be willing to forgive her or him. And a lot of times, people who are married don't like forgiving. 
want to hold on to those grudges and have power over the other person. You hurt me. And then we use that as leverage. But when you understand God's grace for you and you're shocked that God would give grace to you, then you will extend grace to your spouse and you will forgive and you will reconcile and you will serve out of joy. Do you want to change? I mean that. Do you want your soul to be satisfied? Only Jesus. Only He can do it. And if you've never trusted in Him, He can do it today. He'll change you. And if you do know Him, run to Him and enjoy Him. And as we close, number three, God's grace extends to all peoples. This is the point why we're here, to glorify God by making nothing disciples and it's of all nations. And so God's grace extended to Gibeonites. Non-ethnic Jews became part of the people of God. And so God wants to create a people from all nations. And so God's grace, number three, extends to all peoples. And so are we telling other people about Jesus? Are we actively, intentionally sharing the good news of who Jesus is with others? We've been entrusted this gospel while we tell others about it. While we're, oh, oh, while we're going to plant a church. We want to plant a church because that's what we're about. Seeing more people come to faith in Jesus. And we're doing this for the glory of our King together. Can you please pray with me? Father, we praise you. We praise you for your shocking grace that you extend to us. We praise you that your grace, and as we respond to you with faith, is what changes us. And we want others to know. We want others to worship you alongside of us. We want to plant more churches, see more people enjoy a reconciled relationship with you through our King Jesus, our Savior. I pray for anyone in this room who right now is grappling with this truth. May they repent and place their trust in you. And those of us that know you, Father, may we walk with you, draw near to you, enjoy your presence every day and experience transformation. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. We praise you, Jesus, and we pray for your kingdom and your glory's sake. Amen.